Chapter 15 of A Boy Crusoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Boy Crusoe by Alan Eric. Chapter 15 A Hurricane and a Shipwreck. I strove to occupy my mind by digging a large store of yams and gathering hundreds of coconuts and storing them inside the house for use when the rain should prevent my going far from the shore i also gathered an immense quantity of dead branches for firewood which i piled in the rear of the house covering it thickly with grass and then broad leaves and bark stripped from the trees to shed the water the rain became almost constant and after a day of hard work making some repairs that i thought necessary on my house i lay on my couch secure from the rain and wind thinking of the past present and future the wind had risen rapidly until it had become a gale i listened to the rustle and flapping of the leaves of the palm trees and to the roar of the waves on the shore at length through the crevices around the door i could see that the night was frequently lighted up by vivid flashes of lightning heavy thunder began to rumble away back over the forest the wind increased and then came a roar which seemed to shake the earth and shrieks sounded above the dashing of the surf as the wind came with terrible force i could hear the stockade creak and see the walls of the house tremble the rain came in torrents and swept against the enclosure another blinding flash and roar and above the rattle of the palm leaves i could hear the crack and crash of breaking and falling branches and tree trunks a hurricane had broken over the island i lay appalled and listened to the terrible havoc of the tempest I could not close my eyes. It seemed as though the night would never pass, but after long, weary hours, a faint gray light stole into the house, denoting the approach of day and the end of that awful night. The storm abated a little, but the crashing sounds continued to come from the forest. As soon as it was light enough to see plainly, I ventured to go outside the stockade. The structure had withstood the force of the wind, but what a pitiful sight greeted me as I looked about many of the tall coconut palms that had been my friends and companions from the first lay prostrate twisted and broken the ground was covered with nuts leaves and broken branches the little stream was full to the very top of the banks the waves roared and thundered on the narrow beach i turned toward the sea and thought about the night of the wreck but had i gone mad had the horrors of the night so affected my mind i covered my eyes and in a moment looked again yes out toward the bluff only a few rods from the shore was a vessel it lay as though at anchor i saw that it was a barkentine the vessel had not anchored she was stranded then i ran to the shore and waved my arms wildly i could not go to the bluff on account of the swollen stream i saw several men walking around the windlass then they ran excitedly along the deck and then i saw but two men on the deck I gazed out at the rocking vessel and saw a boat slowly swing around the bow. It was filled with men rowing. I saw the boat pointed toward the shore. I watched it eagerly. The boat seemed to make no headway. But yes, it was slowly making headway. Then again my heart sank, as through the flying spume I saw a mountain of water, a great billow many times higher than the stranded ship, come rolling into the bay i stood transfixed with horror spellbound as i watched the water coming with the speed of the wind with a roar which every instant became more terrific powerless to aid the poor souls in the boat struggling against a forlorn hope in this moment of peril of instant death 
I stood, sick and faint, in contemplation of their fate. The great wave now overhung the vessel. Its foam-fringed crest curled over and, with a fearful snarl of anger, like some dread monster with jaws agape, it rushed over the vessel and obscured it from sight. I sank to the ground and covered my face as I wept in anguish. I was overcome at the awful thought of the catastrophe and by the instant, but by full realization of my great disappointment, almost at the moment when rescue from my long, lonely exile seemed near, every hope vanished, and in a few moments I should see the bodies of those whom I hoped would succor me tossed ashore, bruised and mangled. These thoughts flashed rapidly through my mind as I sank to the earth. Yet there was a faint hope, and the flitting thought caused my courage to revive for an instant. If the boat, perchance, escaped being swamped, and should be borne far enough toward the beach to ground firmly, and thus escape being carried back by the receding water, her passengers might be saved. But if not, her fate was certain, for she would be hurled back upon the reef, and not a soul would escape. I started to my feet and strained my eyes in the direction of the vessel as the huge wave thundered upon the beach, the water rolling far up toward my house. Oh, the awful anguish of that moment! At first I could see no sign of the vessel, but as the succeeding wave subsided I caught a glimpse of the vessel and saw that her masts, spars, and rigging were hanging about her in a tangled mass of wreck. The hull seemed to remain in about the same position, it only having careened shoreward. The boat was nowhere to be seen though I carefully scanned every inch of the swirling water. Perhaps it had been dashed ashore unseen by me, obscured in the cloud of foam. I dashed to the beach and ran eagerly along the shore, hoping to find the boat and to rescue her passengers who, if discovered, would be in a state of insensibility. But my search was fruitless, and I stood again a hopeless castaway, no nearer rescue than when, on that bright morning after the storm which sent the Ethel and Hope to the bottom, I regained consciousness to find myself alone at this very spot. I returned to my house and tried to reconcile myself to my disappointment, and to adjust my mind to the rapid succession of events in which were mingled joy and sorrow, hope and despair, all within little more than a half hour. Fortunately my house, thanks to the thoroughness with which the builder, assisted by nature, had done his work, had withstood the fury of the hurricane and had proved to be impervious to the rain so I had no difficulty in making a fire, by which I prepared breakfast, drying my costume in the meantime. The wind had by this time nearly all died away, though the incessant roar of the surf continued on the beach. Hoping still that someone from the ill-fated vessel might escape to keep me company, I went again to the beach, walking along toward the creek. Seeing neither a body nor a sign of the boat, I started to follow along the bank of the creek with the intention of crossing it and searching along the shore in front of the bluff, but I had taken a few steps only when I stopped in astonishment, for almost at my feet, her shoulders upon a tangle of reeds, lay the body of a young woman. I thought she must be dead, for she was very white, and her eyes, while open, were fixed, turned upward toward the palm leaves. As gently as I could I lifted her, and with some difficulty, bore her to a mound at the foot of a palm-tree, where I laid her carefully down, resting her drooping head in a natural position. Poor girl, for she was but a girl, cast up by the sea, dead, and that was all I could ever know about her. How tenderly I would lay her beneath the tropical flowers on the bluff, in a grave lined with soft grass, alas, all I could do. Sadly I gazed at the still form, and was about to turn away again toward the beach when, to my great surprise, I thought I noticed a faint tremor on her face and a movement of her hands. 
I must be mistaken. But no, again there was a movement. No mistaking it this time. Then her eyes closed. I knelt beside her and held her wrist. It was cold, but I thought I could detect a tiny flicker of the poles. Certain now that life remained, I lifted her as tenderly as possible. She was very slight and I could easily bear her weight, but her body was so limp that I found it difficult to carry her, supporting her head at the same time. However, I reached the house, bore her within, and laid her upon the couch. Then I took a piece of the coconut cloth, hastily twisting it to make it as soft as possible, and went to work vigorously chafing her wrists and hands, and I was presently rewarded by seeing her open her eyes. Her head was turned slightly away, but with a faint sigh she moved it toward me. With a wondering gaze she looked full into my face for a moment, and then her eyes closed again. She had lost consciousness, and I again chafed her hands and loosened her wet garments about her throat. In what must have been a few moments only, but what seemed to me to be hours, she again opened her eyes and I saw her lips move. I bent close to her and made out to catch her words, faintly whispered. Where am I? Is papa here? That was all, for then she swooned away again. Her father, how strange it all was, and now for the first time, I remembered that I had not noticed a woman on the deck of the ship before the boat was launched. Satisfied now that her life was safe, I left her, hurried to the beach and renewed my search, when, directly in front of my door, with the water washing partly over it, I saw the body of a man resting upon the sand. From his appearance I judged him to be a sailor. I dragged the body out of the water. The limbs were rigid and there was a deep gash on the left temple. Feeling certain that life was extinct, I turned and continued my search. I soon picked up an oar, and as I came to the mouth of the creek I saw something which caused me to start back involuntarily. It was a hand protruding from a pile of broken reeds. Hastily I tore away the reeds, revealing the body of a man which, I noticed, was not dressed like a sailor. While I was moving the body away from the edge of the creek, I observed that the man was rather past middle life, well-built and rather stout, of medium complexion, with thick hair and moustache, both being sprinkled with grey. His limbs were not rigid, which caused me to hope that a spark of life remained. I therefore began to treat him as I knew drowning persons should be dealt with, and shortly, to my great joy, he began to revive, and was, ere long, able to sit up and look about him. He gazed at me in seeming wonder, as though thinking me to be a being of a different species from himself, which was not to be wondered at in view of my picturesque costume. "'Oh, Marjorie, my poor girl,' were his first words. "'If you mean your daughter, sir,' I said, "'she is safe and sound in my house yonder.' He extended his hand to me, which I took and held while he recovered his vitality sufficiently to go to the house. "'I fear we shall intrude greatly upon the hospitality of your household,' he said, with a little effort. "'No fear of that, sir,' I made reply. "'For the company of yourself and daughter is certainly a great pleasure to me, and I am the sole member of my household.' "'Are you alone, then?' he asked. "'Yes, sir, alone on this island,' I answered. He was going to say more, but I begged him to desist until he was stronger, and until he was able to proceed to the house. He expressed himself as being fully able to do so, and as he seemed anxious about his daughter I assisted him to rise, and, placing an arm about him, I supported him as he walked slowly to the house. The meeting of father and daughter was a joyous one. The girl was able to sit up, and the color was returning to her cheeks. I could not help noticing at a glance that she was very pretty, tall, with a slender, well-molded figure, with brown hair and blue eyes and a clear complexion. 
she was i judged anywhere from seventeen to nineteen years old with usual feminine thoughtfulness of her appearance she had already coiled her hair neatly and rearranged her damp garments as well as she was able while i stirred up the fire so that my visitors might dry their clothes the father related briefly the story of their experiences his name was richard harborough of halifax nova scotia from which port the wrecked barkentine three sisters of which he was the owner hailed his family consisted of his wife and three daughters for whom his vessel was named he had determined to make a voyage in his vessel for health and recreation and his daughter marjorie a student at dalhousie college whose health had been impaired by overstudy had accompanied him the family physician strongly recommending a voyage in the southern seas as a restorative the three sisters had taken out a cargo of general merchandise to demerara british guiana and after discharging she had proceeded to greytown british honduras where she had taken in a partial cargo of mahogany for boston proceeding from the central american coast to san domingo where she took on board sufficient logwood to complete her cargo during heavy weather the seas that came aboard had polluted her fresh-water casks and seeing the island just at dusk they had put in toward it intending to anchor until morning and then to come ashore and refill her casks but the storm broke upon her the rain obscured the island and she would have gone ashore had she not struck one of the hidden coral reefs what prevented her mass from going overboard the men could not explain but it must have been a miracle they said as soon as the barkentine struck the anchor was let go by which it was hoped she would be prevented from drifting until daylight when first i saw the men on the deck they were hauling up the anchor finding that the barkentine had not drifted with the intention of taking it to windward and trying to work her off the reef by heaving at the windlass but realizing that the vessel was hopelessly aground and fearing that she might break up it was decided to try to reach the shore the results of which attempt i had witnessed End of chapter 15